This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm, I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have all the questions. Make sure to stay up to date with The Art of Charm and get some great stuff that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up at theartofcharm.com. That's where we'll email you our fundamentals toolkit that covers topics like body language and nonverbal communication, dating, attraction, persuasion, business networking, public speaking, negotiation, and a whole lot more. I'm also doing regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward every single week. We've got our live programs running every week here in Los Angeles, California. In fact, we've got guys from all over the world, which shows that no matter where you are, you can make it here if you want to learn and grow. We're sold out a couple months in advance, so if you're thinking about it even a little bit, get in touch ASAP by phone or email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. Get some info from us now so you can plan ahead. Looking forward to meeting you here at AOC. Before I forget, I also want to encourage you to join us in the first Social Capital Challenge. Go to theartofcharm.com slash challenge or... Text CHARMED to 33444, and we'll have you text us your email instead. No spam, and works a lot better when you're not in front of your computer. This challenge is about improving your social capital and inspiring more people to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. During the first four weeks, we're giving away something special as well, so keep your eyes open for details. You will not want to miss out on what we're giving away either. This challenge will get progressively more difficult, so if you think it's easy at first, great. And this will make you a better networker and a better connector. Oh, and the last thing, if you want to have accountability, please invite your friends to join the challenge as well at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or have them text CHARMED to 33444 so they can join the challenge too. Today we're talking with my good friend Neil Strauss. We're going to talk about how fame amplifies the faults people already have, lying and withholding as a form of control, what you do when you love your partner but have a sexual desire for someone else, separating love and sex, exploring relationship options, the many faces of polyamory, who gets the front seat of the car after all, and how to live in integrity and be a scientist of your own lows. All this and more on this episode of The Art of Charm with Neil Strauss. So, Neil, glad to have you back on the show, man. It's funny, two days ago I got an email that said, hey, why don't you have Neil Strauss back on the show? It's been a really long time. And I was like, your wish is my command. He'll be on Friday. And he's like, whoa, that's awesome, thinking, like, I just called you up and booked you instantly because of that suggestion. And I'm totally fine with that. When I did a book with Marilyn Manson, and he called it the idea of delusional self, where you think something and then it happens, and you think the entire world revolves around you. That must have been kind of incredible because I've heard many stories about this guy and also people say, oh, it's a shtick. He's an artist. But I just I can't believe that you can have art that's that far away from your actual personality. Yeah, I think it's just an exaggeration of one side of himself. Right. So like when you do your radio show, it may not be how you talk with your girlfriend. Kind of is actually. That's kind of how you are actually on the radio show. Yeah. But you don't show all. You don't show all the sides of himself. So I just think that's the side of himself that he finds the most interesting or entertaining, and he's always crafting it. But it's not like a shtick. Like, hey, I'm just. I mean, maybe different now. <laughs> now, like, <laughs> it's harder to be the antichrist when you're in your late forties. Yeah. And still, and still be the scary. But but outside of that, I think that's kind of an accentuation and an exaggeration of who you are. Do you think he gets up and he's like? These damn kids are making it hard for me to concentrate on being the Antichrist. I got to move to a quieter neighborhood. And like 4 p.m., he's like, oh, man, I'm so tired. I need to take off this latex bodysuit with fake breasts and take a nap. You know what? The more I think about it, the more I think like outside of the outfits and the makeup that he puts on, like he kind of lives that. I remember he'd like wake up in the morning and there'd be like a line left over and he'd snort it and he'd say that was just for fun. And, and kind of wink at me and then grab some absinthe and start drinking. So wow, I guess he lives it. What's great when you're, when you're a rock star, you just have your manager to take care of you. Like I remember one night he calls his manager. He's like, Hey, you know that big mannequin we have? Is it okay if I set it on fire and throw it in the pool? And the manager is like, just don't hurt anybody. Yeah. Right. Like don't make me call lawyers because that's a huge pain in the butt. But other than that, destroy your own property all you want. 
you basically get to be an adolescent with parents who let you do whatever you want and then support you whenever you get into trouble. That's what being a rock star is like. Well, if you make anybody enough money, they'll put up with you, right? It's sad, but true. Yeah. I mean, well, here's the thing. Your new book, you have a manager, but they didn't get you out of some of the some of the shit you got yourself into. I don't, I don't I mean, my like, if you're a writer, you just have the people who only do like, they don't really take care of you as like a person. They just sort of like make sure your contracts aren't like, ripping you off or taking away your rights to your own work so for example when the game made a deal at sony they insisted on owning the rights to my name for the rest of my life and so they're the ones who say well i don't think that's fair right sony what sort of limitation were they even envisioning for that working out i mean that seems like one of those ridiculous asks that is impossible to grant Right, and their logic is, oh, we're going to be investing all this money in a movie, and we're going to have a character named Neil Strauss, so if you go use that, that could compete with our rights. <laughs> like, it's insane. You're like, you're going to have to take that up with my mother, uh, <laughs> right, unfortunately. Right, exactly, exactly. And judging by the book, your mother was not going to sell the rights to your name. Maybe she wishes she had now. Yeah, she might <laughs> now. And so what do you do in one sentence? And don't say writer, that's a, that's a cop-out, because everybody knows that already. The way I think of it is I tell stories. Fair enough. It's storytelling, whatever whatever form it may take. And why do you pick the subjects that you do? I mean, first of all, Jenna Jameson, Marilyn Manson. How often does the artist's art or lifestyle rub off on you? Because you spend a lot of time with these people. In fact, the way that it occurs to me from reading a lot of your writing and talking to you as much as I have is you started off kind of nerdy and introverted and in this sort of enmeshment, if you will, as per the book, and then you kind of went, well, look, I've got no freedom. Who has the most freedom of anyone? Rock stars. Boom, music, rock star profiles. Has working with these people as closely as you have changed you? I see what you're saying, and good summary. No, it's just fun to see. It's just fun to see. It's really fun to see and learn from people who are operating at such a high level. Bruce Springsteen once said in an interview, yeah, he said, so we we're talking about psychology and how he was in therapy. And he said, well, the thing is the leap of consciousness it takes to go from playing in your garage to playing in front of 50,000 people is something the human mind is not meant to withstand. And so to talk to people who have to deal with all that stuff, uh, you just learn so much. And it's really interesting. And again, a lot of people, you know, our entire tabloid TMZ culture is based on sort of hating on people who have money and have fame and thinking, oh, what are they complaining about? But the truth is, with those people, they think fame and money, and let's just say in the case of the game, women will fix you or heal you and fix what's wrong with you. But all of those things do are amplify what's already wrong with you. And so they get to that place. And it's fascinating to watch them because everything is operating at a higher level. You know, a mistake they make is rippling in front of 50,000 people. Uh, just the just the stuff they do, and again, rock stars. Also, I think I also also always had a dream of like being on the road with rock stars too, because I certainly wasn't a good musician or a musician at all. So getting to go on the road with a rock star is like some kind of adolescent dream come true. Of course, I mean, everybody kind of goes without saying. Everybody would want to check out their favorite band on the road, and you spend a large amount of time with these bands, especially things like Motley Crue, where you you traveled with them for a, quite a while. But I do remember reading about how you watched them bang just countless women and things like that while not doing much of it yourself, especially when you were talking about writing the game. It was kind of the thing that, that kicked everything off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was like, okay, if I'm on the road with Motley Crue with a stack of backstage passes in my hand and I still am unable to have sex, like something is definitely wrong with me. Like, you know, it's like I got a, I got a full house and I still can't win the poker game. Yeah, yeah. Fast forwarding to the new book anyway. For me, it was surreal reading this because the first page or the, the little inlay page, I don't know what the name of that thing is. It says, Ingrid, please don't read this. Like the next page says, seriously, don't turn any more pages after this one. And I, I know you, I know Ingrid, and I know I've, I've traveled with you guys and hung out with you guys. So I couldn't wait to turn the next page. But I assume that she probably had the same reaction. Has she read the truth or, or are you just really hoping that that never actually happens? No, she she did end up reading the truth. And it was the best thing that ever happened to our relationship. So I don't want to give this away, but I'll kind of give it away. At the very end of the book, the last note at the end just says, it again, it's after the conclusion of the book, so it's not a spoiler, um, is uh, it just says, Ingrid, I actually hope you do read this book because I want you to know the real me. So having her read the, the truth 
And in that book are like basically every horrible thing I've ever done, every shitty thought I've ever had about her or anything, all those, you know, when maybe if, if you're in an argument with a uh, your spouse or, in, or or someone you're in a relationship with and in your head you're thinking these shitty resentful things like it's all in there and there are things like you would never want someone to read because it's just a thought that flies through your head but it's all raw and when, but once she read it like we definitely had a lot of discussions and it definitely was a couple days of discomfort for her but afterward our relationship got to a whole new place and the lesson was that if you don't compartmentalize things in your life, whether it's your desire for other women, your worries about the relationship or the future, whatever they may be, and you share them in sort of a compassionate way with the per your partner, you will have a much better relationship. You can actually be in a relationship now. So once she read all that stuff, she's like, oh, that's it. Now I've got nothing to worry about because I know everything and you don't have to hide anything. So really, I recommend everyone write a book like this and then show it to their partner. It's the best thing that ever happened to us. I think that's interesting from my perspective because my first thoughts, it's different when you know people in books, and this is probably something you've experienced. Hell, you write them so you know everybody in, in your own books. I don't know if you've experienced reading a friend's book and knowing the characters, or at least some of them, because I'm picturing all of these things happening not just to characters I know from a book, but I, I can imagine very well what you would look like if you were really upset talking with a therapist. And I can imagine what Ingrid would sound like if she was really upset and wanted to, you know, throw you off the balcony. I know, I know what this would look like. So a lot of the time I'm reading this, I'm cringing because I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what's, what's going to happen? How, how much worse can it get? I mean, how much more vulnerable can someone be? But at the end of the, of the day, and at the end of the first several chapters, I thought to myself, man, if you could write down your deepest, darkest stuff and share it with your partner, and then they know that that's the bottom and they can bounce back up, they don't have to worry about anything coming out to surprise them, biting them in the ass, because it's in a friggin' book. It's out there. Not only do they know, but they can go back and reference it if they need to. Right. Yeah. And, and exactly. I mean, that's kind of why it's called the truth, because I came to the realization over the course of this that withhold lying and withholding, which is just not sharing your reality with someone, is a form of control. It's kind of saying, well, hey, if you knew the real me or you knew my real thoughts, then you wouldn't accept me. So I'm not going to show you me or show you those thoughts in case you have a reaction. And you may have a reaction that I can't control and that then I'm going to feel out of control. So if you kind of let go of want to control the other person, you can share your truth with them and, and all this stuff and they can then make the choice. Do I want to be with that person or not? And then you're having a real relationship and empowering them with a real decision. Uh, a friend of mine said, he was like, if you're going to cheat, if, you want, if you're in a relationship that's monogamous, and you want to sleep with someone else, resolve to yourself that you're going to tell your partner first if you choose to do it. You know, and then you have a choice. If you, you might think first before you even do it. And if you're going to do it, you're going to think, well, is it worth it to me? Is it worth it to me to harm my relationship for this experience? Because you, see, you almost see the consequences before you do it. Yeah, it's crazy, man. I've done a few interviews with journalists for the book. Maybe more than half the male journalists I spoke to who read the book like said, hey, man, I want to confess something to you. I hope their wives don't listen to this. Uh, and they were like having affairs and things like that. And like, I don't know what to do. Uh, so it just seems like it really strikes a nerve with people. I think it's so hard. It's just so hard to be honest, honest with somebody you love. And even if you think you are, really think about, you might feel like you are right now, but think about, did I share this? Did I share that? Do I try to protect her from these thoughts or him from these thoughts. So your new book, The Truth, comes out, you're a day behind. If, you, if you're listening yeah, to this right now, out, you're at least a day behind on reading this book. And it's essentially about, at least the first part, is about some of the, the tough spots in your relationship. And I'll let you tell this because you wrote it and you know it better than anyone. I've got my own shocked reactions that I'll share later. Right. And it's also not just about that. It's also like we're also in a changing world and a changing culture where we have so many partners just to click or a swipe away. And um, and also that it's that that maybe being monogamous isn't required. So also it was trying to find a better way to have a relationship because I sucked at them. And not just, okay, the stuff I was saying earlier about truth and honesty, but also what, what do you do if you love your partner, but you have sexual desire for someone else? Like, can you still love them? What about that desire? Where does that go? How do open relationships work? How does polyamory work? How does, what, what about just a bunch of friends, male and female living together in a sort of a, a free love commune? How would that be? And I literally tried, all, what about just not getting, what about just saying, 
separating love and sex? What about if you just say, I'm going to get my best female friends, like we've been, we've been friends for so long. What if we just have a child together? We've known each other for years. We're not going to get in fights. We'd be great parents and then separate the love and sex, have family and then have the sex outside of that. What about that? Like there's so many options in the world and maybe there's one that will just really resonate with me or resonate with other people. So part of the book also and is exploring those other options to their pros and cons and what works for them. Most of the times when you read, say, about polyamory, and polyamory is the idea that you don't have to just love one person. You can love many people, and it it just has to be honest. All the partners have to know about each other. That's kind of the basic idea of one philosophy of polyamory. And so I thought, well, hey, that makes sense. Like, of course, you have different friends. You know, you you can love four children. Why can't you not love a few girlfriends? So I started getting these relationships, and I moved in with, with three girls. (laughs) <laughs> and, wow. And and by the way, now there, there's that moment where it might sound like I'm bragging. I want to clarify that if you can't have one relationship, don't try to have three at the same time. It was like three times the disaster. I don't know. I should have seen that coming. But when you read about polyamory and they talk about the philosophy of it, what they don't share is little things that you don't have to deal with in monogamy, such as who gets the front seat of the car. Like it would be an issue. They'd all walk up and like stand from the front seat. I have to like oh. choose who gets the front seat. It was so stupid. Like there are so so I really went into these things also just to sort of like forgot how to navigate them and see what the truth of them was. So that was part of the book as well. Besides that journey with 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 Ingrid was to really find out if there's a better relationship for me than monogamy. Right. So spoiler alert: now you're married. Right. So did you choose monogamy, or do you have some alternative rules going on that you can share? Yeah, yeah. Here's 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 my thought on it, which is I think deciding all the rules for a relationship and then never changing them for 50 or 60 years may not make sense. It becomes dogma rather than a relationship. So Inger and I kind of went into the marriage saying that we're just going to do whatever, whatever is healthy for you. There are three entities to, to me in this, in a, in a, in it, which is her, myself and the relationship. And so if something is healthy for all three, that means it's a good thing to do. So the idea is like, there are a lot of labels like defining yourself as monogamous or non-monogamous, even, even in a way, even in a way like, and this may be controversial, maybe it's not even a way straight or gay or whatever. It's like you, people have to choose one extreme or, or the other. I'm Republican or I'm Democrat. I'm straight or I'm gay. I'm monogamous or I'm non-monogamous. I'm, there's probably a million other things you can think of, but what about just sort of like living in the moment and doing what's right for all parties concerned at all times? I mean, how do these conversations work in a relationship where maybe you're thinking, all right, well, I have a strong desire to have sexual relations with somebody outside the marriage. I mean, are you able to bring that up in in a rational way and then her be like, I'm not okay with that. And then it's like, okay. And then what do you do with that if the answer is not what you want it to be? I mean, and that's a real relationship. If if the answer is always exactly the answer you want to get out of it, then you're a cult leader. It's like a fascism, you know, or totalitarianism. You're not really giving one of those cult things in LA or wherever. And but here's the other thing: you can say, "I really want to sleep with someone," and they can say, "That's not okay." And then you can make the decision. Well, you you still have freedom of choice. You can say, "I'm going to go sleep with them anyway," and take the consequences. Right? They're not saying no. They're just saying, "I'm not comfortable with that." And then you have a free choice as to whether to do it or not. Right? They're not making you not sleep with them. You just have to decide that sexual experience is worth more important than my relationship. And if it is, great, go do it. You know, right. <laughs> you're probably doing your, you're the partner a favor, but you're free. Like no one's saying you can't do anything. You always have choice, but live in, live in integrity. Having chosen marriage after the whole, the, the whole part of the book that I've read so far. Here was the, here's what changed for me. The funny thing was when we got back together, we had, didn't have these discussions. It really was originally just sort of mono, just pure monogamous. And once I was willing to really accept that and let go of wanting to let go of everything, everything started to happen for me. So we just really get hung up. We really get kind of hung up on things that we can let go of and not intellectualize, especially when it comes to relationships or marriage and just sort of, we just get brainwashed so much that it's hard to see the truth. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. 
Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Now let's hear some more of the truth with Neil Strauss. Having chosen marriage after the initial infidelity, the sex addiction, therapy, rehab clinic that you went to with all the other like wild folks, therapists included, it seems like you've chosen then the monogamous route, having chosen marriage, or do you think that at some point you're gonna have to say, look, Ingrid, I want this other experience, and she's gonna be like, that would not be okay with me, and then you would make a different choice? Or have you chosen then monogamy, or is that something that's still up in the air that you're not even sure about? I think the entire perspective that you're asking the questions from speak to the problem I originally had in the relationship. Right. In the sense that I had this thing in relationships, and a lot of people do, of oh, she won't let me do that. He won't let me do that. Like, oh, you know, whatever. She won't let me sleep with other women or she won't let me, you know, still talk to my ex or he won't let me, you know, whatever, wear these clothes when I go out or he won't let me talk to my ex. Like, nobody's making you do anything. You have complete freedom of choice at all times. Yeah. You just have to accept the consequences of that choice, right? Nobody, so if you let go of that, it's a big difference. So for me, like, monogamy didn't start working for me until I made the choice in versus, oh, I have to do this for her saying, oh, no, I want to do this. Um, and then as far as your question goes, it will never happen or it might, but, you know, it might have one day where I'm like, oh, I met this person. I really want to sleep with them. I'm really excited about it. But more likely is what's going to happen is we're going to be in bed one day, you know, kind of already happened. And we have these discussions like we talk about our fantasies and what would be cool and what would be fun. And one day we'll do we'll do it. Uh, but it's going to happen. Not like it's hard for most people to tell whether something is healthy or unhealthy when they want to do it. So the question is, what forces are operating on you when these things happen? For example, was there a fight or did she kind of press a button and then you kind of went out and you're kind of resentful and then some girl texted and all of a sudden you want to sleep with her and it has nothing to do with that? Or is it a case of like, hey, we're just, we're really in a great place and, and, and we're having a lot of passion, a lot of sex and wouldn't it be fun to kind of open things up a little bit more and and see what happens and work it through and, and have you live your fantasies. So whatever we do would kind of come about through togetherness versus I'm in my own universe and I have this secret life and I want your permission to go live my secret life openly and I don't care about how it will hurt you or not, which is maybe how most people think of it. Look at Ashley Madison. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. One thing that's funny about fantasies is I, I've found that I, I know a lot of people, and as do you now, especially that are in this sort of alternative cultures and stuff, and it makes their relationship stronger. So they say, and it's so crazy because I'm thinking, how can that possibly do that? But when you get really close to that subculture and you start talking to those people and they become really close friends of yours, you find, well, wait a minute, what happens to fantasies when they become reality? All that magic fairy dust that was sprinkled on there gets dusted off and it's just another experience. So a lot of what you're seeing, you know, where you're thinking, wow, this thing that's on a pedestal that's elevated into the clouds of how amazing it's going to be to let's do it from a, a college kid perspective, sleep with somebody that they've seen on TV. It just becomes another sexual experience that's really cool but wears off after a while, and the story ends up being better than the experience ever was. Right. There's a term for that called euphoric recall. <laughs> nice. <laughs> like, and that's what's great about being a writer is I take really good notes. So sometimes if I have euphoric recall, I can look back at my notes and, and see, or, or my journals, and, and see like what really happened. And here's the thing. The important thing is to let go of this sort of polarity of 
you know, alternative relationship, regular relationship. Am I going to do this road or am I going to do that road? Is this road good? Is this road bad? The, the truth is this. We're all just human beings. And some of us are healthy in our in our relationships and the way we relate to others, including the way we relate to sexuality. And some are unhealthy about it or compulsive about it. And that goes across the board for any type of relationship. So when someone's like, this is the right relationship, I guess what I found is is that is isn't. It's the people in the relationship. It's the way you relate to others. So it's not like one is the holy grail and one is not. And the other thing is two different people can be doing the exact same thing. And one can be doing it for healthy reasons. The other can be doing it for unhealthy reasons, even though they look the same from the outside. That's an interesting point. Can you separate those two a little bit? Because then you, obviously there's a lot of, there's a lot of people right now going, wait, what? But cheating is unhealthy if the other person doesn't like it or sleeping with other people inside your relationship is a signal of an unhealthy relationship. And that's not necessarily true. Well, at least as per your experience. Yeah, let me give you, I'll give you an example. Like I have that society group that I work with. So there are two guys, right? And one person really wanted to sort of be an entrepreneur and and, and get, get a, have a startup and get a bunch of funding. And the other person also wanted to be an entrepreneur, have a startup and get a bunch of funding. So with one guy that happened and he got 2 million, 2.1 million pounds in funding, something, maybe 1.2 million pounds in funding, I think it was. And that's great and he's happy. The other guy, well, the deal was he wanted to do this because his dad kind of went bankrupt and he felt like he needed to have a lot of money and like he could never have enough. We thought, stop worrying about money. Go travel the world. Take, you know, just travel, spend money instead of trying to save it, enjoy your life. And so he didn't do that and that was right for him. So the point is you can have two goals, but what's coming out of a kind of fear and compulsion and insecurity and feeling like not enough and what's coming out of just really just enjoying life and, and, and passion. So if I was to take the game as an example, right, how much of the game really came from really enjoying sex and how much came from low self-esteem, feeling like not enough. But if this woman who I feel is beautiful is willing to be naked with me and accept me, then I'll be okay with myself, right? The former seems like a great thing. Let's just enjoy sexuality and humanity. The, the other one is really just using someone to feel better about yourself when you should be doing that yourself. Right. And so to put this in sort of a, a monogamy conversation or or a marriage conversation or even just a relationship conversation, I think a lot of guys think about, well, okay, I need to do this. This is something I need to do because whenever I get questions about cheating in my inbox generally is where I get these from like a10469 at gmail.com, like the address that, that they don't ever plan to use again. Right. It's usually resolved in air quotes by asking several questions back and forth, one of which is, why do you want to do this? And the first answer is something like, she's gorgeous. It's unbelievable. You have no idea. Sometimes there's a picture included of just like a normal cute girl or whatever. The second question usually digs a little bit deeper. And almost all the time, it digs into an area where there's something wrong with the existing relationship and or there's an insecurity inherent in the asker that has more to do with non-acceptance, not getting this out of their system earlier, uh, feeling like when they got married, they did it out of necessity instead of choice. There's almost always something inherent like that and not just this irresistible pull from the other person. It could have been anybody in the picture. Yes, yes and no. I think it goes even deeper than that. And by the way, but I thought of something, which is just to take it out of the clouds for all the guys who are emailing Jordan and, and women and saying, saying, saying they want to cheat. Here, here's a little hack. Just before you want to call or text or see that person, just masturbate first and then see if you really want to do it. There you go, right? Take the edge off. If you get nothing out of this entire thing, just remember, masturbate first, then see if you really want to do it. Yeah. Has that, has that worked for you pretty well? Uh, yeah, I don't have to do that now, but for sure, like in times when I was really, when I was compulsive about it, that like was a good band-aid. Like you're going to find that once all those kind of chemicals and hormones like leave your system or get drained or the brain's reward centers are then satiated, they don't need a reward for at least a little while. I'll tell you what, I mean, now that we're in the TMIville, it's funny because masturbation's come up several times in the past couple of weeks on the show. That's a good rule for pretty much anything. And I don't mean just for sexual relationships. I mean, if you can't sleep, masturbate before you go to bed. I mean, there's there's a lot of edge that can be taken off from this, and it's kind of a funny way to to clear your head, but 
it's almost cliche, right? And I don't think a lot of guys and a lot of girls, for that matter, really believe that our thinking is impaired so much by this. This urge, it's not just a desire, it's an actual urge. And I think that's one of the major differences between the sexes, and, and that's just because we've explored it. I think there's, there's probably a lot more in common than we even think, but here's what I think. What you're saying is almost like is almost like drug addiction in a sense, because sort of like, okay, if you have anxiety, you can't go to sleep, just masturbate first. It's kind of like saying take a sleeping pill first, but hey, it's coming from your own body, so it's sort of healthier. So I would say also, I would just say, look at the reasons why you're masturbating. If you're doing it to deal with anxiety, the definition like of addiction, right, is you can't deal with uncomfortable emotions or feelings, so you do something to distract from it, whether it is heroin, alcohol, masturbation, or eating. And so there's a part of it where if you're just always using it for a certain reason to deal with something emotional, to deal with anxiety or to calm down, then maybe you should go to the source instead of just sort of getting that hit of, hit of dopamine. I, I definitely agree with that, I, 100%. I'm not saying, look, if you find yourself masturbating 10 times a day to deal with every little anxiety-provoking issue in your life, you've got serious problems that you should look into, or not so serious problems that you should look into. Somebody in the middle of an exam is caught masturbating, and they're like, well, Jordan, Jordan told me to do it. I can see the tweets coming in now. <laughs> There's a difference between addiction and occasional use, right? I don't think anybody would say, wow, you've had a tough day at work, and you had a beer, and it happens a couple times a month. You're an alcoholic. You need help. It's, you're using it, right? So using it as a tool versus relying on it because you have no other way to deal with the problem, I think, is, is different. I mean, I think, and again, like I use my own kind of body and emotional makeup as sort of an experiment. So my thought is, if I feel like I have to have a drink after a hard day of work, to me, there's sort of a dependency there and there's an inability of myself to cope with what's going on. So I, I will think, well, okay, can I find another way to cope with a hard day of work besides that? I, you know, maybe whatever it is, maybe in the middle of the day, go jog or swim, maybe in the middle of the day, go meditate. Can I do something to, to let go of that? I'm all about like, how much can I find inside myself as a resource before I have to go kind of outside myself. So let's just say after hard day of work, you go get a drink. What if you're then able, what if what used to be a hard day of work, maybe in a year, seems like a regular day of work because you increased your resources to, to, to deal with that much. And then maybe you can sort of grow in your career and in your passions by finding a way to internally deal with it. I guess my thought is this, if you have to justify or rationalize anything, it's usually the wrong thing, or if you need it all the time for a certain reason. And I'm a guy who like, toured with like every drug addicted rock star there there was so i would see how they would use it for for coping and again i know it's not what you're saying but i just think it's really good to be in a place of doubt and always questioning your habits yeah no i agree with that 100% if you can if you can deal with a hard day at work by hitting the gym good but it's always healthier to build up your capacity to deal with stress than it is to to numb it, right? That kind of goes without saying. That's exactly it, exactly. However, I think there's probably, and you've probably even met these people throughout your own uh, adventures, aren't there people who are just addicted to exercise that do yoga like 20 times a day or lift weights? Yeah, 100%. There's absolutely anything that you're doing kind of compulsively, for sure, they're exercise addicts, and because it seems healthy, we don't realize, recognize it as an addiction or a culture. In fact, I was talking to a musician friend of mine and he was really we were and we we're talking about creativity i'm really of the idea of like what's a habit that maybe you're not aware of and what would happen if you broke it or changed it and it's things that you just really depend on that you may not think of for example i was thinking okay when i write a book i always write it on my computer right it just seems like it's common sense i write it on my computer but what if i wrote a book on a just on a lined paper would it be a different kind of book i think like if you really want to challenge yourself as you, you step outside of habit and what's why younger people like when youth or your even kids like everyone's like a rock band their first album is, is usually the second the second album is always the soft, sophomore slump because that second album's almost always or it's a general kind of rule is is after a big hit album is never as good and again there are exceptions and i'm sure we can list them but it's because they thought oh i was doing something right then i better do it again so as we kind of grow in our creative lives or our careers or just even her relationships, can you see everything completely new and reinvent what you're doing in every moment? And that's a great way to stay kind of connected and alive and creative. I love that, actually. How do you feel, how do you and Ingrid feel about having not only this stuff all out in the open, that's, that's great, we've established that, but other people knowing a lot of just stuff about you 
that's very personal, like your relationship with your mother and the sex addiction rehab clinic and the swingers. I mean, that's just out there. Now, people you meet, do you look at them sideways like, did he read the book? Well, it's not out yet, right? But you're going to be looking at people like, does he know that I did this? Is that why he's looking at me like that? Or I mean, I feel like I'd be a little paranoid, at least at first, about that stuff, or at least not paranoid, but uh, I'd feel vulnerable a lot. Yeah, I, I honestly think it's easier because you have nothing to hide. Like before I wrote the game, I was always scared of being found out. I was working at the New York Times, and but I, but secretly under an alter ego, I was produ- posting in these kind of seduction news groups all my like sex stories and questions. And if I was found out, I would just would have been busted. It would have been the end of my career, really, as a as a journalist. But but once I told the story in the game, then it was like, okay, now you've told us, and there's no kind of hypocrisy. So to me, it's freeing. Like, it's really freeing to not have, first of all, we're living in a culture where the secret and privacy is dying, right? So right. whatever secret life you have, it's one day going to all be out there. All those, like, whatever porn sites you're visiting with those insane, you know, name, names and titles on those on those videos, so that someone's going to be able to access that, those records probably. So I'd rather tell the story as I experienced it with all the context in which I experienced it than have someone else find out. So to me, it's like freeing. Oh, shit. Like, I don't have to hide anything. And I think hiding is about shame, and the less shame you have, the better. So to me, I'm like, it's it's a load off. But it is weird, because people will look at you, and you can just see in their eyes, like, you know, the whole story, uh, and you don't know anything about them. Yeah, I don't feel embarrassed or ashamed about a lot of things. I just feel like there there's always a little element of vulnerability that takes some getting used to. Me and Jenny went to... Um, we were in San Francisco, and we went to the Armory. Do you know about this place? Yeah, I've been there. I got a tour of the of that. Yeah, it's fascinating where Kink.com is, right? Yeah, it used to be this Armory for the National Guard and has, like, cannon buttresses, and it's this crazy fortress in the middle of the city of San Francisco, and Kink.com bought it, and now they make all this dungeon porn there. And we got tickets to go check it out. Not that we're, like, into dungeon porn, but it's just a freaking fascinating place. They, they, they have, like, a oil drums full of lube, like, these giant oil drums full of lube. It's insane. Yeah, and, and chains hanging from the ceiling and like some of them are rusty but the ones that the people hang from are nice and clean and they talk about how they keep the areas neat and like there's like a fake slaughterhouse in there i mean it's it's all fetish stuff and it's really really interesting it's it's like a cool it's a castle in the middle of san francisco how can you not be interested so we go in there and there's a bunch of other couples in there and some of them you can tell are like they're hardcore fans of what's produced there and in the middle of the tour this one guy's like okay i can't take it anymore jordan you know we love love your show. We listen all the time. Me and my girlfriend listen together. And I thought it was really cool. But for some reason, I felt this little element of like, oh, my God, I just got caught at this place, even though everyone's in this place and there shouldn't be any anything attached to it. So for a couple of weeks after that, I was thinking, like, why did I react that way? Why should I have reacted that way? And you find all this little programming that you think you're rid of that's just still there waiting to be activated by some incident or some event. And the more that you expose that stuff, like that story right now, if I ever go back and someone sees me there, it won't be weird at all because for God's sake, I just admitted it on the show. It's like a cathartic experience. So I totally understand how you writing a book about all this stuff, it's kind of like writing the message on a lantern and then sending it off into the distance, right? Yeah, yeah. And and I don't want to have to live up to like, it's it's a weird thing that like you, you kind of write books or you do the radio show and then people put you on a pedestal. And yeah. I don't ever want to be on a pedestal or feel like I have to live up to uh, some false standard of being that's not true to myself. Because again, I know people who are like, I purposely chose not to kind of do tour the world and do like seminars in the game for the rest of my life. Because I'm like, I don't want to be standing on stage pretending like I'm perfect when I'm not. I want to keep working on what's wrong with me and be trying to become a better person. So and it's fun. Like, I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's fun, but for sure, like, and that's what I love. What I love is, there's a line in the book, it's a be a scientist of your own lows in the sense that when you're when you overreact to something if you're really sad or really angry or in a lot of emotional pain instead of trying to not feel it what if you just go inside it inside there and see what's going on are you why are you in pain okay somebody left you okay they they left you and it hurts you feel what what's going on you feel rejected you have some fear they're going to be with someone else you have a fear that person may be they may think they're better than you what but where did you feel where did this coming from okay you're your dad or your mom was, wasn't there for you. And it's like a replication of that wound. If you just keep going deeper and deeper, you know, what are you going to find out about yourself? And you can sort of let go. I think we have this thing in our culture 
like about happiness. There are all these books about happiness. Like it is the worst thing ever to be like, my goal is to be happy all the time. It's insanity. It's like, a, it's so messed up and it makes people more unhappy. Oh, because they think like, oh, if I'm sad or I'm anger, I'm in pain, I'm not happy, something's wrong with me. And then they get even more sad and, and more angry. And to me, the book would never sell like the happiness book, but I would write a book called like acceptance. Can I accept it when I'm sad? Can I accept it when I'm in pain? Can I accept these things? And you're going to be much happier as a result anyway. All right, now back to Neil Strauss. I spent the majority of my 20s chasing that stuff. Like, I would be in college, have lots of friends, go to lots of parties, have a really great girlfriend, and then be like, I'm going to go study abroad in Israel because then I'm going to meet all these even cooler people from all over the world and even better looking women and have more fun and it's more liberal over there. And then I'd go there and be lonely or whatever. And then I'd be like, I'm going to go to Ukraine because the girls are beautiful and the food is cheap and I'll be, not only will I have everything I had in Israel that I idealized that I didn't really have, but it'll be really affordable too. And I would go there for three months and be like, wow, it's, you know, I'm basically just the same person in a different place. You carry your reality with you. And wherever you go, you just replicate what you've experienced before because it's still you doing it. And it's funny because I really related to what you were just saying because I certainly did the same thing for college and then, you know, going to New York and becoming a journalist. And, and they, it always ended up the same. And maybe that's what drew us to that kind of game world early on that was another chance to do that. Yeah, because it wasn't like I, I wasn't drawn to it for the same reasons that a lot of people who write in were where it's like, I can't get any. No one likes me. I mean, I get those those letters, too, but more recently, especially there's a lot of folks who are looking at self-improvement because everything is fine, but they're still not happy. And that was totally me. And you you mentioned earlier, someday all your porn searches and everything are going to be splattered all over the place because of technology. I would love to get your take on the Ashley Madison hack. I know you wrote an amazing article in Salon. We'll link it up in the show notes for those who are interested. But this stuff is, is fascinating because not only has it been just all over the news, but it, it seems to not be going away because the hackers actually followed through on spilling the beans on everybody. And even uh, even one of the instructors here at The Art of Charm, who apparently was a member on there, who's a totally single, rambunctious guy, uh, Johnny, if he was a member or not, we don't even know, but they're like, you give us $1,000 using Bitcoin now or we're going to post your profile in public. And he's like, great, more publicity for my profile. But I feel like that's, you know, for a lot of people, that's their worst nightmare, being blackmailed about this even after it's already been publicized. What do you think about has this really destroyed millions of relationships or were they already in the tank? Uh, where do you stand on this? Because you're kind of in a unique position for this. Yeah, I think that you've got to accept the consequences of your actions. And again, I'm not sort of getting on a high horse because I'm the guy, I'm, the, I'm speaking this as the guy who got caught and it was the best thing that ever happened in my relationship. So I'm really speaking from that experience. It's like, as soon as you cheat, as soon as you make a, create a rupture in the relationship, you're signing yourself up to get caught. And especially now when it's impossible not to leave a technological slime trail behind for someone else to discover. So for sure, like in some ways, I think that you're signing yourself up for that. I know this sounds kind of controversial, but you're signing yourself up for your privacy to be invaded by doing that. Because if it wasn't some hackers, it would be your partner doing that, looking, you know, because you're going to be behaving shady and distrustful, and they're going to be looking through your emails and through your phone. So, so cheaters <laughs> have had their privacy, and people who maybe some people are cheaters who get their privacy invaded by their partners. Some people are just sort of um, shady. Maybe they haven't cheated, but they signed up for national. You know, all the guys who are like, oh, I signed up for national plan, a profile, but I never used it still fucking cheating. If you did it behind their back, it's still cheating. So, um, okay, now these two, now people can be back in reality and negotiate the relationship they want to have moving forward. So there's an opportunity to be back in a relationship. So in, in many ways, it's good news because now it's out and people can breathe a sigh of relief and fix the actual problem. And sure. And there's always the, you know, there are always exceptions. There are people obviously who are in countries where maybe they are identified as homosexual and that's illegal or they, uh, or maybe they're places where their cheating is, is a, you know, a punishable crime. But again, if you're doing something in secret, first of all, it's also not smart. Like, honestly, like, I also think they're all idiots Yeah. because you're using a credit card, like you're using an email address. You know, if you're like, you're also stupid because <laughs> you're like, there's no way there's, 
there's just no way not to get caught if someone wants to catch you. It's just idiotic. You know, I was thinking when you were talking earlier, like I was remembering, like, I want to just ask you something because I remember like the first time we ever met, I went to your guy, your part, I think it was your apartment in downtown New York. Yeah. You started off really talking about the game and, and the, the pickup artist community and then, then really developed your own direction, the way you were kind of going with things. And it really just became about women and, and, and now really it's so much different. It's really just kind of what you're interested in and what your audience is interested in. It's just expanded in just an amazing way. But I'm wondering what shifted for you. What happened for me was I started off, like many guys do, thinking, all right, I'm going to solve this problem by getting really good socially, and that the funnest aspect, funnest is now a word, aspect of that being 26 at the time was learning to meet and attract women because networking was cool, but I thought it was kind of for old people. And I was doing it, but I also really wanted to focus on the dating stuff, and that's what my business partners were good at. So getting good at that, I realized, wow, you know, th this is a, a skill set that I'm pretty decent with. And so I laid off the gas for a little while and I started, I kept working, I kept the momentum and I started working on myself. And what I found was that by working on myself a lot and just, and by working on myself, I mean not paying attention to how this looks to the opposite sex or to anybody for that matter. Just like, oh, let me pick up another language. Oh, let me travel a little bit more. Oh, you know what? We should uh, biz make this a business because it's working really well. Let's focus on entrepreneurship. That stuff actually had a much greater effect on both my self-esteem, my sense of self-worth, my sense of of legacy, if you can call it that, uh, the personal value, and made me much more attractive to the opposite sex because of the confidence effect than learning anything tactical about attraction per se. And then I decided, well, okay, I'm getting sick of talking about the attraction stuff in general. I wonder if the show can survive just doing a couple of episodes about what I'm interested in that I think has outgrown just dating and maybe even just outgrown relationships in general. So I focused on guiding the brand based solely on my own personal interests. So you and I did episodes on North Korea and things like that. And, and instead of just catering to a smaller demographic, it turned out to be a much more engaged and much larger demographic that was much more interested in personal growth in kind of a health from a healthier standpoint than just people trying to plug a hole in self-esteem. Not that that's what guys are doing when they learn how to attract women. That's it's a human need, but it turned out to be more fun to just talk about things that I was interested in versus trying to figure out what the listenership would be interested in solely. And and I turned out to be totally wrong about what people were interested in anyway by focusing so narrowly. Is there anything that you're that you're interested in that you've been nervous or reluctant to share? Not really. I mean, I think about that all the time and I look at things like, well, do I want to talk about whether or not I should get married? Do I want to talk about whether or not I should move in with my girlfriend, which I did on the show. I actually had my friend who's a therapist lay me down on a couch and we mic'd up and did an episode about should I move in with Jen, which I did. And that's all out there. And I just answered everything truthfully. And I found that it was really cathartic and really cool because I got a lot of support from people. I didn't get any, maybe one or two that I, I can't remember, but I, I didn't get any, and I can say that with some authority, letters like, oh, come on, man, what is this garbage? Get back to business. Everybody was interested in that stuff because at some point, we've all gone through something similar and or the exact same things that I'm going through just as a growing person in America, in the world even. Exactly, exactly. And, that, and that's exactly why I wrote the truth and why I was going to be that vulnerable because I thought I can't be the only person who struggles with relationships and is scared of marriage and the idea of forever and the idea of never sleeping with anyone again. Like if I can solve this problem for myself, maybe I can solve that for other people. And those things that you're the most scared to say are the ones that people connect to the most because they're scared to say them also. And you make it okay. It's almost like a song. It's like, it's like if you're in a certain mood, you're, you're sad and you listen to Leonard Cohen, like you're like, okay, I'm not alone. One of the things about this book, the, the, again, called The Truth, we'll link it up in the show notes, that's one of the things about the book that's kind of scary and really interesting, and I think a lot of people are going to get mad at you for, is it makes you think about your own issues and crap in your relationship and outside your relationship and it makes you ask hard questions because you're being so vulnerable i think a lot of people are are not going to like you for that great that's great and that's and by the way thank you for saying that that really is the goal like if someone just reads it and it's an entertaining story and they laughed and they enjoyed the journey 
that's cool. But I really do want people to ask the hard questions about themselves and maybe be confronted with the things that they try to avoid. So that's great. That that would be the best reason ever to be hated. Yeah, I, th- I agree. And I think for me, what came up, speaking of oversharing, right, is that I'm reading this book and I'm in a very happy relationship. You know, I'm going to get engaged at some point very soon. Like the ring is in the freaking mail from the jeweler right now. Right. And people who are listening may or may not know that. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, wow, all these questions you're asking about, like, isn't this just hardwired male uh, biology to want variety? And can I really be with one person? And all these questions about monogamy. These are things that I'm thinking about looking at marriage. I would find it hard to believe that anybody going into a monogamous relationship, a marriage relationship for the rest of their life, ideally, uh, is has not thought about any of that stuff and is also not you know, going in it with delusions of this is going to be perfect forever. Because I feel like if you have any sort of realistic grip on your own thought process, your own biology and your own relationship history, you have to be thinking the same things. I can't wait to get to the end of the book because the answers are there and you've got to call me as soon as you finish it and we got to talk because I can't wait to get the answers because those were all the questions. And like, I felt like I wasn't, this book took five years because I'm like, I'm not going to stop until I find the answers that really, really work for me on a real level, not just a you know, a pat, okay, here's a conclusion. So I can't wait. Like literally it's been a five or six years since my last book of new material because writing about this subject you're talking about are the hardest questions. Learning how to meet women, okay, that's easy. Learning how to survive, you know, learn survival skills and survive in the wild. Like those are just skills you can learn. Like this one is, they're like the hardest questions. So I, I can't wait till till you get to the end of it. And I can't wait to get your thoughts. Yeah, I'm ex- I will text you the second I turn the last page. It's funny what, what you were saying about, about how this is so true. When I went to go get my kind of wedding ring sized, I walked in and the woman at the counter was like, you seem happy. I'm like, yeah, of course I'm happy. I'm getting married. It's fucking awesome. And she's like, well, it's interesting. Most guys who come in don't seem happy. The women do, but the guys don't. And I thought, oh, that's fascinating. Wow. That's really interesting. And for me, I procrastinated on the ring for a long time. And I, my friend, John Corcoran, who's been on the show as well, he's married and I go to him for a lot of stuff like, like counsel. It's funny because he's, he's also one of my lawyers. So I just trust him with stuff that's completely inappropriate to tell your lawyer because we're friends too. Right. He goes, how's the, how's everything coming? What's the plans? Are you going to propose it? And I go, oh, I'm having some difficulty with the jewelry. And he goes, translation, you're nervous about it. He's like, just do it. If you're thinking about it, he's like, trust me, every guy, will procrastinate, they'll they'll find some reason not to do this or not to go shopping and da da da. And it, it is nerve wracking because one, on its face my fear was, well you want to get something that she likes, but the deeper and more obvious now that I think about it, excuses, look, when you buy this, that's when you're making the decision. It's not when you propose and it's not when you go to the get the marriage certificate. This is a legitimately big step towards the biggest decision or one of the biggest decisions of your life. And if you're going to swipe that card or write that check and go pick this thing out, you're making a bold statement and you've got to be comfortable with that. Don't try to distract yourself from it. And I really let that soak in. And it took a long time to let it fully marinate, if you will. That I think was healthy. I don't think buying it and just, you know, keeping your head down and suck it up and go buy it is, is a good plan. I think you should let it sit for a while because a lot of stuff comes out. And I think there's a line from a Tarkovsky movie that says a man has a fear of anything that is irreversible. And so, but I think also we can build that up, like what you were just saying, we can build that up into a big story. This is it. It's the point of no return. This is forever. I'm, you know, we're going to, you know, and then I think the future and the past get in the way of living the present. Though another way to think about it is, hey, I love her. I'm so excited to get married to her. I'm going to go get a ring for her. And whatever happens, happens. Like if it doesn't work out, we're adult enough that it won't work out. And we can go our separate ways. Like there's no, the commitment is to the moment, you know, not, not necessarily to the, to the future. And we definitely build it up in our head where it has to work out and it has to be forever and has to do this and that. And if we kind of let go of that, we can also just say, I love her. I feel really good. This feels really right. I'm just going to go with it. Yeah. And why is that the case? I mean, it seems like this is such a future facing decision that being present. Yes, it's always it's always nice to have that. But shouldn't we be thinking about things later on down the line or am I missing your point? The point is, we have no idea what's going to happen in the future. We have no clue. Like we have no clue. And all we know is what we're experiencing then. 
and we're not even sure about that because it might be going through our messed up filters. So you can't really predict the future. You kind of can't know the future. And also the rational mind is inherently like flawed. So you guys could get hit by a truck tomorrow. Like someone could get terminally ill the next day. Somebody could cheat. Anything could happen. And what you believe is going to happen is more influenced by your past than reality anyway. Excellent. Well, so what's next for you now that you've kind of put a lot of dirty laundry out there? Yeah, I kind of want to do every book. I sit down to write one thing and it turns into another, but I really want to do a book about communication and the idea. And I've never done like most of my books are really just stories of true stories that are in my life or other people's lives and that really serve as metaphors to help one's life or to just be funny and entertaining. But I kind of just really want to do a book about communication and the idea that what other people are saying has nothing to do with what you're hearing. There are so many kind of filters and past experiences and beliefs that things are going through that when you're sure someone said something or did something and you're sure about what they meant and it was for this reason, no. <laughs> and so I really want to do, like, I think it leads to murders. I think it leads to divorces and fights and all kinds of horrible things. And I would love to do a book the goal being for people to question whether they're really understanding someone when they speak and even when they're, especially when they're so sure about it, because most of the time they don't. I'm sure even everyone hearing this radio show is thinking different things that are just coming from the basis of their own experience. Someone may think, what this guy sounds like he, what does he know? Like, you know, what does this guy know? Or they might be thinking, oh, this guy went to rehab. This is like stupid sobriety talk. Like they could be, or they might think, oh, this is really awesome. I want to go, like everybody listening is having a different response. And that response has nothing to do with what I'm saying. It has everything to do with your past experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's always done through that filter. And the filter would be a subject of a book entirely. And, and by the way, just to make the, set the record straight about the whole rehab thing, I don't even know about sex addiction. Like, I don't even know if I was or wasn't a sex addict, but I know that I learned so much. And what I loved about rehab, and I think it's awesome and I recommend it for everybody, is that it's the best therapy in the world, if you go to the right place, by the way, uh, because it has to work because lives are at stake. If you just pay like 100, 200 an hour, 300 an hour, I don't know how much the therapist costs. They cost a lot to sit in front of someone and talk for an hour. They can just get away with just keeping you, you know, keeping you not bored or entertained or feeling like you got something for an hour. But sort of when people have these addictions, lives are at stake. For me, it wasn't necessarily the 12 step stuff, but the stuff that goes deep into your childhoods and looks, looks at the parental experiences that shaped your beliefs was kind of life-changing. And, and I think like the whole therapy model is broken. I think it's better to do a, a weekend intensive where you're really getting in touch with some deep, deep stuff is going to be much more powerful than just talking to someone about your problems, problems in your life for an hour and then giving you some like advice or a couple good nuggets of wisdom. Therapy boot camp. Therapy boot camp. Boom. That's the next. It's, it's the, the art of, uh, what would you call it? The art of... Uh, oh, gosh. I don't know. Self-knowledge. I'm trying to rhyme it with charm, which is really hard. When, when are we going back to North Korea? When are we going back to North Korea? I'm thinking later, either 2016 would be cool. Um, if nothing literally or figuratively blows up, that would be really neat. Thanks so much, Neil Strauss. The Truth, available yesterday. Dang it, go buy it. It's uh, linked up in the show notes or on Amazon. Where Where is the best place to buy books these days? Do you get better experience at a bookstore or do you just order online like everyone else? Uh, like, honestly, if you want to help an author going to like, and, and you want to help a bookstore as well, I support the indies, man. Go to an indie bookstore. Nice. Available at a bookstore near you, which you can find on the internet, because you probably don't even know where that is, unless you read all the time. Wow. Excellent episode. I always love talking to Neil. Neil's the kind of guy where when we talk, I almost wish that we recorded every conversation we have because a lot of them are just like this one, only maybe better organized and done in person. So I always love having him on the show and we're going to do plenty more with him, I'm sure, in the future because that's the guy who just does not stop putting out great stuff. I do recommend highly the book, The Truth. I know that we have a lot of authors and books on here, but this is a really good read. It's really fun and it's a novel. It's not super heavy duty. There's, an, there's a lot to chew on, but uh, it's not so chewy, if that makes any sense. 
Show feedback and guest suggestions, the show's a fanarchy, it's run by you. We rely on you to help keep our finger on the pulse, so if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let us know, guests at theartofcharm.com. If you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Neil on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes, as well as all the other resources and his book that we mentioned on the show. You can tap our album art in most podcast players to see the show notes right on your phone. I also post a lot on Twitter, stuff that never makes it to the show. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. Bootcamp details at theartofcharm.com or bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. Remember, we sell out several months in advance, so plan ahead, get info from us now, make it happen. Subscribe and review in iTunes. Of course, we have our iPhone and Android apps available as well. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of The Art of Charm podcast. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week, and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 